turn to the book of Daniel chapter 5. If you need a Bible, Stephen is up with Bible in his hands and he'll bring you into your seats. You can follow along with us. Just raise your hand and he'll get one right to where you're at. Daniel chapter 5 tonight. The handwriting on the wall. That's what we could call this. I read one pastor call this chapter divine graffiti. That's a good one. I think I'm getting a, a little bit of a ring on this, just maybe because it's maybe it's my headphones. Pull it out a little bit. Testing one, two. That's fine. I think it's okay. You know, the, the phrase handwriting on the wall, I mean, whoever has the handwriting it's meant for is about to face a very, very difficult time. His or her life was about to be over. And, and I tell you this, Daniel chapter 5 is one of the stories, that, I mean, that if, unless it was in the Bible, you never would believe it. I mean, you just go, okay, no way. Really? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord, this opportunity that we have to be able to open your word. And Lord, just to see you move in the miraculous and the supernatural, uh, just to affect a person's life. We recognize, Lord, you do that all the time, Lord. We don't see it all the time, but you move supernaturally all the time for, for the good in our lives as believers. Lord, we also see you move in, in judgment as well. And Lord, just as we see tonight, Lord, in this chapter, uh, Lord, we pray that you just give us uh, just hearts to understand your heart, Lord, just opportunity to, to see uh, your word and apply your truth to our lives. We thank you for this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last time together we got to see Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. We saw his his the fact that he finally gave his heart to, to God, and, and we'd seen time after time God revealing himself to, to Nebuchadnezzar through the fiery furnace, through the through his dreams, but yet it took old Nebuchadnezzar really becoming an animal, grazing out in the fields until he finally uh, realized that God is the true God, and his pride was, he was humbled, his pride was put down, and, and uh, really as we pick it up here in chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has died. And uh, we have advanced now 23 years, really, to, in time to see the final ruler of the Babylonian Empire. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 5. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, who had, had taken the throne after six years of unrest in Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he was not a, a, a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. However, he had married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, therefore making their son Belshazzar Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Uh, Nabonidus was the king of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, and his son Belshazzar was the king of the city of Babylon. And, and throughout this text, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as Belshazzar's father, but that's simply because the word for father is the same as grandfather. There's no difference. So, uh, Now, what is interesting is that um, uh, Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, had been in a battle with the Medes and the Persians in, in what's called the Battle of Otis. And, and, you know, what happens when dad's out of town? Well, when dad's out of town, what do you do? You throw a party. And look what happens. Verse 1 tells us that Belshazzar the king made a great feast. See, for the last 
20 years or so, Babylon had been at war with the Medes and the Persians. For the previous two of those years, the city of Babylon, they'd been under siege. Yet despite the onslaught, Belshazzar felt that, hey, you know, we're, we're invincible. Man, you can't break into our city. No one can stop us. Herodotus, the Greek historian, uh, gives us uh, impressive details as to, as to the fortification of the city of Babylon. The city was 15 miles square, surrounded by a double wall separated by a 30-foot moat. The outer wall was 311 feet high and 87 feet thick. This is huge. You could line 11 cars side by side on top of the wall. The wall had 250 watchtowers, some soaring up an additional 100 feet. I mean, even by modern standards, the walls were impressive, uh, a piece of a high-rise architecture. Now, under the walls was the Euphrates River, that providing Babylon with its own water supply. Historians report the city had food reserves to last for 20 years. No wonder Belshazzar felt like, hey, you know, we can party. No one's going to get to us. Now, here's the scene. While the enemy is outside plotting, Belshazzar and company are inside partying, and they're having a fall feast, if you will, to honor the Babylonian gods. I've read that archaeologists have unearthed places or palaces at Babylon containing great halls large enough to, to hold a thousand guests. They've also discovered that the walls were covered with a white chalk-like substance, which explains the matter of the, the handwriting on the wall. But their main idea in these verses is, is the drinking of wine. It says they drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now wine has always been associated with, with Babylon and the Babylonian system of the world. We know Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The ancient Babylonians, as a part of their worship, would get drunk. You know, being raised Roman Catholic in Southern California, we would have what's called these fall festivals, and we called them fiestas. And, uh, you know, basically they were beer fests. And, and you, know, they, they'd, you know, they'd have a room and a parking lot, and the parking lot was a little carnival in the game drawer, and so all the kids were out there while all the adults were getting wasted drinking beer on the inside. But, you know, nothing has changed, I mean, from Babylon. Let me say this about alcohol and the dangers of it. It's a sin that not only affects the person, but it affects all those around them. Many moms are beaten by, by drunken husbands, and many uh, uh, children are beaten by drunken moms, and people have, have been hurt without cause because someone was drunk. And those who are intoxicated get this false sense of courage, and they say things they wouldn't normally say, and they do things they wouldn't normally do. I've always been amazed by the description of someone becoming drunk on wine in Proverbs 23, verse 29 through 35. Let me read this to you. It says there, Proverbs 23, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? And you read that and you go, that's exactly what happens to a person who, who gets drunk and, 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 and what they do and they're, they're, they're not themselves and they're given this false sense of courage and nothing can harm them. 
Well, this is Belshazzar. He's drinking the wine and he's got this courage and, it, and it's causing him to blaspheme the God of heaven. Look at verse 2. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. I mean, this really, again, was a wrong time to be throwing a party. The city had been under attack, but again, through their pride, you know, they felt like the fortress was impenetrable. And really, how so like people today, they think that their lives are secure and nothing can, can upset it. You know, it's a false courage. Now, this false courage of Belshazzar made him do something he would never do sober, defy the God of heaven. What a mistake. Look at verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So this really, this banquet turned quickly into just a drunken orgy. Uh, you know, most oriental kings didn't drink in public and their sexual antics were restricted to their hair. But, but here, Belshazzar, he just lets it all go out the window. You know, just this, this hard-drinking playboy and, and uh, uh, not only was his immorality bad enough, but what tips the scales in God's eyes is when Belshazzar brings out the vessels from the Jewish temple. You recall when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he took the holy vessels from the temple to Babylon as trophies from his victory. The sacred saucers, the dedicated dishes, the, the consecrated cups, and you know God's law commanded that those utensils were used for the temple service and would be used for no other purpose but for the service of Yahweh. And Belshazzar knew that. But again, in his arrogance and his defiance, he deliberately defies these holy vessels. He turns them into wine glasses and they're drinking and they're, they're reveling in their superiority of their gods over the God of the Jews and giving praise to, to these idols. You know, God warns us about sin in our life. But if we choose to ignore Him, our hearts can become harder and harder to the point where you're just acting like Belshazzar. God has set a standard of right and wrong and we choose to go down that wrong path. God's grace can and will be exhausted to the point where eventually our sin will destroy us. Look now at verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. What's happening here? God is crashing his party. God shows up and says, I'm putting an end to this. And this finger begins to write on the wall. All of a sudden, whoa. Now, a newer translation says that, that Belshazzar's face turned pale, but uh, you know, it says here his countenance changed. In verse 6 it says, his hips were loosened. What does it mean when your hips are loosened? I think it's a polite way of saying he messed his pants. I mean, you know, I don't have any other way of putting it. You know, his face turned pale, he messed his pants, and his knees are knocking together like castanets. I mean, what a way to sober up fast. But you see, God and his sovereign, again, has set a standard. He alone declares the difference between right and wrong. And with that standard well established, he tells us if we continue to do those things that are wrong, He'll extend his outstretched arms to pull us away from them. You know, but if we don't, we don't go, if we don't move, we're going to face the consequences. There will be consequences. 
And it's sad, I think, in our country today, we're seeing an outright rebellion and mockery against our God and the things of God. A nation that has become more divided, I think, than any other time in history. And it's not a race issue. It's not a Democrat-Republican issue. It's a God issue. People don't want to have anything to do with, with the God of the Bible. And it amazes me today to see the audacity in mankind of being created by God, living on His planet, enjoying the breath that He provides, and man has the audacity to say, you know what, I don't really like this whole Jesus thing, and I don't really like the commandments, and I don't, you know, God is just a God I don't like. And see, the bottom line is, until you get your own planet and create your own people, which is not possible, then the decision is not up to you. God sets the guidelines, God sets the rules, and here's what he says is right, and here's what he says is wrong. And you refuse to do what is right, there's going to be consequences. Proverbs 1, 24 through 30 says this. The Lord says, Because I have called you and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terrors come. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. I think people today need to understand that, that God is under no obligation to continue to strive with man. Yes, God is a God of many chances, but woe to those when those chances are up. Because here we see in the middle of this drunken toast, Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall, thus starting the saying, the handwriting on the wall. You've heard people say, oh, I've been in this job for three years now, but now I see the handwriting on the wall. It means I've got to get a new job. My time's up. Well, Belshazzar's time was up and he was terrified. I mean, who wouldn't be? Look at verse 7. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. That word for cried aloud means literally the, the king shrieked. He was freaked out. He continues, the king spoke saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. So when the king calls for someone to give him the, the understanding of what was written on the wall, there was no one that could uh, at all. The astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. You know, it seems to me that these Babylonian wise men were pretty useless. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar called for them, them twice and they failed, and now they're 0 for 3. Verse 10. But the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now, this queen here is, is the queen mother, probably his mother, uh, uh, perhaps even the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, his grandmother. But she says in verse 10, O king, live forever. He goes on in verse, uh, she goes on in verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom, and whom the spirit of the holy God and in the days of your father, grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom, like your wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father of the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. 
Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in the, this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. I want to make an interesting observation here. Notice there's this huge, big celebration going on, this huge party with all these leaders coming in. Yeah, where was Daniel? He wasn't invited to the party. You know, when the world throws a party, usually the children of God are not invited. We don't fit in and our values would just be a nuisance, you know, to the world that wants to party. But man, let a, let a marriage break up or let cancer hit or let the children get in trouble or the career hit the rocks. And who do they call? Man, they call the Christian. Daniel wasn't invited to the party, but when God intervened and no one had the answer, suddenly Daniel is the man of the hour, the man the king wants to hear from. All that to say is you, you never know our influence upon other people until a crisis hits them. I mean, you may be stuck in an office or in a classroom or a factory or a neighborhood or a family gathering where you're the only Christian there. And maybe you feel overlooked and taken for granted and, and maybe even possibly harassed and, and ridiculed and misunderstood. Hang in there. Because God may be using all of that for a reason. He's setting you up to be used in a, a particular situation. I mean, that's what's happening here with Daniel. Look now at verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you could read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, I don't need your stinking money or anything you want to give me. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> Paraphrase. He says, let your gift be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel had, he had no, you know, desire, no interest in the rewards that the king would want to give him. Only what God had made known. He told the king, keep your, your gifts to yourself. Give them to somebody else. I don't care. I think Daniel is taken a, a, a little stronger stand than we, we might see at first glance. Because I think if, if there was someone else maybe in the same position, they might accept it. They might even justify it. Oh, you want to give me that? Well, you know what? If I'm ruling the kingdom, I'm the third guy in charge. I mean, think of all the things I could do with that money you're going to give me. Think of all the things I could do with that, that position I'm going to get. Man, this is a little bit of bribery there. Daniel makes no such justifications. I mean, he certainly could never be accused of greed or selfish ambition. Couldn't be accused of, of the love of money. We should be followers of his example, as the writer of Hebrews encourages us in Hebrews 13.5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. All through Daniel's life, he was a, he was a man of integrity. Well, then in verse 18, we read him giving Belshazzar the testimony of how God worked in the life of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And this is really kind of building up and he's kind of, you know, given 
Belshazzar the whole picture. He says in verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from the, his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of man. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Just a, an overview of what God did with Nebuchadnezzar and how God dealt with the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and how God is, 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 you know, is using this. How Daniel really is saying, listen, I've seen this before. I've seen the path that you're on before. Same as your, your grandfather. And this is what, what, what happened to him. Now here's a key verse here in verse 22. Make a great topical message. Verse 22. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Although you knew all of this. You knew all of this. You know the story. You know of Grandpa grazing in the field. You know of what's happened because of his pride. You know what he wanted. Why would then you go down the same path of arrogance and pride? Putting yourself really above God. Putting down uh, God. I mean, why after all the knowing your grandfather wanted, would you do these same things? You know, he says, how, how do you know all these things and yet you do nothing about it? Doesn't that remind you of the question that, uh, that Jesus asked in Luke 6.46? He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Why do you call me Master and you're not doing what I ask you to do? I mean, you'd be better off not calling me Lord. See, this implies that we have this relationship with God, one in which when He asks us to do something, we are, are going to do it. Daniel says, here's the problem. You knew about these things and yet you've done nothing about it. Someone once said the greatest sin in America is listening to sermons. But that was interesting. Interesting, Not the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life, but listening to sermons. Why? Because we listen with our ears, but, but they never make it to our hearts. We talked about this last night at Men's Study a little bit. The man who buys every book ever written on the subject of running. How to have the right shoes, the right form, the right time to run, how to run with other people, how to run long distance. You know everything there is to know about running, and yet you've never run a day in your life, and you have no plans to start running. Jesus said in John thirteen seventeen, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I think that's a very easy sin for us to fall into. To know what the Bible says, to know what, what God is speaking to us, but then not let it sink in from the 18 inches from our heads to our hearts. James puts it this way in James 1, 22-24 in the New Living Translation, but don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the Word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. Kind of look in the mirror and go, I think I'm okay. And you turn away, I don't know, am I okay, am I not okay? I don't know. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great description for us when we don't learn from the mistakes of our past. Belshazzar definitely had not. And so Daniel rebukes the king for his arrogance against the Lord God. He goes on now, look at verse 23. He says, And you have lifted yourself 
up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Wow. You have blown it, Belshazzar. And then he gives them the interpretation. Look at verse 24. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tekel, you farsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Prez, you, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel lets the king know that it was God who sent the message and what it said. I like what John Phillips says. Is why could Daniel read the writing on the wall? Because it was his father's handwriting. You know, understand, this was not the first time we read of God writing with his finger. First time we read of God writing with his fingers in Exodus chapter 8, God sends the plagues and, and the Egyptians because Pharaoh will not let the people go. And the first plague, you know, they turns the Nile River, the, the, the life source in the blood and the fish died and it just stunk. And then, then the second plague of the frogs everywhere and the third plague of lice and, and lice. And, you know, I shared this on Sunday, uh, the plagues were coming upon Egypt and the magicians of Pharaoh, you know, duplicated them. A pretty dumb thing to do. Oh yeah, well I can do this and, you know, double trouble. But the magicians of the pharaohs it reached a point where they couldn't do what God could only do because God is omnipotent. These guys were fake. And when they were unsuccessful, they said to Pharaoh in Exodus 8, verse 19, he said, they said this, catch this. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. And the, Lord had said. the finger of God pointing out that they did, the Egyptians they did not respond to it, they were found guilty, they were condemned. Second time we read of the finger of God is found in Exodus 31, verse 18. And it says there, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Exodus 31, 18. God wrote the very same commandments that Moses came down with from, from Mount Sinai. It's the commandments that were written with the finger of God that, that, that point at you and me in judgment. See, man has this false idea that, hey, a hey, man is really pretty good. They're all basically okay and we'll make it to heaven if we don't blow it too badly. But you see, God has given that written law with his own finger to dispel any doubt that we are in any way righteous enough to make it to heaven on our own merits. Roman, in fact, Romans 3.19 tells us, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. It's a law that points a finger at us and, and says we're going to be judged. And the law says the same thing to us that, that God said to Belshazzar. We are weighed and found wanting. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The law shows us that we need a Savior. Galatians 3.24 Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So I have three instances of the finger of God. The finger of God in Egypt. The finger of God in Sinai. The finger of God in, in Babylon. And each one of these instances all relate to, to judgment. But then we move to the New Testament. So we have a couple of other references to the finger of God. First in Luke 11, 
where Jesus is casting a demon out of this deaf and dumb uh, man, and the religious leaders, they were jealous, and they accused Jesus of, of uh, casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus, uh, you know, refuted that accusation by basically saying that that would mean that Satan was divided against himself. Don't be dumb. He didn't say don't be dumb, but basically that's what he said. That's what he meant. Because Jesus then says this in Luke eleven twenty. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Another instance of the finger of God. Now in that instance, the finger of God is equated with, with his power over Satan and his power over the forces of demons. But I love that. What a great comfort that is to us. You know, we often think that, that Satan is just a, just a strong one, yet, yet he can, can't withstand just the finger of God. God can just take care of him with his little pinky. I am, boom, you're out of here. Listen, we're no match for Satan. That's what, why D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, my friends, you are no match for Satan. And when he wants to fight you, just run to your elder brother who is more than a match for all the devils in hell. Then there's one more instance of the finger of God. It's found in John chapter 8. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus was there in the temple and teaching with the Pharisees, brought this woman to Jesus and said that she was caught in the very act of adultery. And it says in John 8, verses 5 and 6, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I like that. I mean, here was the dilemma. If Jesus said stoner, he would no longer be seen as gracious and merciful to the common people who enjoyed being around him. But if he said, let her go, then they would accuse him of being a lawbreaker and, and unholy. They thought they had him, but then Jesus didn't say a word. He just stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Why did Jesus write with his finger? Well, because he's God. It's the finger of God. Then verses 7 and 8 of John 8 we read, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. That doesn't say what Jesus wrote. But I'm using my, you know imagination, my, you know, sanctified imagination, from the reaction it would seem very possible that Jesus is writing the names of, of the men holding the rocks in their hands, holding the stones in their hands and maybe right next to their names he's placing an act that they did in violation against the law of God. Because we read in verse 9 of John chapter 8, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in the midst. So they see, oh, that's my name. Oh, I gotta go. Look at the time. Next day, oh, that's my, I gotta go. Oh, and then writing, writing till the, till, till no one's left except the woman. And Jesus looks at the woman in John 8 verse 10 and 11 and says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't deny her sin, but he didn't condemn her either. He exhorted her to go and sin no point. Here is my point. The finger of God through Moses showed judgment, but the finger of God through Jesus Christ shows grace. The finger of God through Moses, who represents the law and rules and religion, shows death. But the finger of God through Jesus represents grace and mercy and shows life. Well, here we have Daniel. He says, the fingers are writing of the wall. They are the hand of God. And they're bringing judgment. Look at verse 25 again. 
And this is the inscription that was written, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Eupharsin. And this is the interpretation of each word. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. There's a threefold message. He says, number one, Mini, Mini. Not eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's not, you're a meeny, meeny. No, meeny, uh, it says God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. The whole, you know, world is, is built on numbers. Every material substance is made of a certain amount of chemicals and minerals. Music is based on numbers. The life of each one of us is based on numbers. God was saying to this wicked king, your number's up. Your number's up. Moses said in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us the number of days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Then the second message, Daniel says, Tekel, tekel, in verse 27, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, you've fallen short. I said this already, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been weighed in in the balances and found wanting. Found wanting means found light. There isn't enough weight. Belshazzar's moral condition did not, not weigh enough. I said that, kind of mentioned this already. There are those who say, well, when we die, we get to heaven. God's going to pull out this big scale and all your good stuff is going to be on one side and all your bad stuff is going to be on the other. And you're just going to hope that all the good stuff is going to outweigh all the bad stuff and God will say, okay, come on in. Well, you need to use this first on unless time, unless time that someone says that you've been weighted and found wanting. You've come up very, very short. It's only through what Jesus Christ has done for us that we can be found not wanting, not lacking. Then he says, number three, you farce him. But then it says in verse 28, prayers, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now someone says, well, there's a contradiction here. No, you farce him is the plural for prayers. And what did all this mean? Well, that God had counted the years and the days of the kingdom of Babylon and they were about to end. They've been weighed. They've been found wanting. The kingdom was going to be divided. They're going to be conquered by the, the Medo-Persian Empire. So all this is said. Belshazzar is there. He's listening to it. He saw the writing. Now look at the way that he responds to this news. Not repentance like you would hope for. Not what must I do to be saved. What must we do to keep the kingdom. Now look at verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. What? What about the judgment that is coming? What about the warning that he's given to him? What about what's happening here? He was oblivious to it. Here, Daniel, here's his clothes, you know, as if Daniel, as if he had all the time in the world. Dressing Daniel as if, you know, he thinks he's going to live forever. He ignored the judgment that was to come. But that night of revelation soon became a night of condemnation. Even at that moment, the Medes and the Persians, they were, they were preparing their attack. History tells us that Cyrus, the king of Persia, knew that Babylon had provisions stored up for at least 20 years. There'd be no way of conquering the city from the outside. They had to find a way to get in. But the walls were huge. So what do they do? Well, they knew that the Euphrates River provided Babylon with their water supply actually running under the, the walls of the, of the city and then through the city. So Cyrus did something brilliant. He commanded that his army be divided, one part at the wall where the river entered the city and the other division where the, where the river exited. He then took that uh, part of his army upstream and had them dig a canal and divert the river away. 
So when much of the river changed course, the division stationed at the walls of Babylon saw that the water level had dropped significantly enough to enable them to enter the city. And that's how they come in. And in verse 30 we read, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius and Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. True to the words on the wall, the great Babylonian empire came to an end in a single day. I wonder how many of us realize that the writing is on the wall for this world presently. I closed with this on Sunday morning, uh, this last Sunday. I think it's a good way to close tonight. Peter tells us in Second Peter 3, verse 10 and 11, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt up with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter 3.10. We can take that, uh, 3.10 and, and 11, we can take that and put that on the wall. We can say, hey, these are God's word. This is the writing is on the wall. God is going to come back. Belshazzar did not heed the warning and his world came to an end. We know that God's word is true. We know that, that eventually this world is going to end. So what sort of people ought we to be? What sort of life should we be living in, in holy conduct and godliness? Galatians 6, 7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. See, here we come back to the, the reoccurring theme. God's judgment is slow but sure. And God had given Belshazzar plenty of opportunity to repent. And, again, as his grandfather, Belshazzar made the mistake of elevating himself above God taking those temple instruments and, and ignoring God. And the Lord is patient. But He will not withhold judgment forever. We should never uh, be careful to not take advantage of His grace and compassion by choosing to live however we want. And from Daniel's perspective, we should never underestimate the power of one life lived for God. I mean, Daniel was a man of integrity. He retained his purity throughout his life. You never read of, oh, and Daniel fell in this way, and Daniel, you know, messed up over here. Daniel, he maintained his, his walk with the Lord his entire life. And God used him. I mean, he used him to confront a pagan empire. I believe God, in the same way, wants to use each one of us as long as we don't submit to the pressures of our own culture. We need to keep ourselves pure. First Timothy 5.22 says, Not to share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. We looked at this last night again at the men's study. You know, we're talking about 1 Corinthians and how after Paul ministered and started that church there and things were going good and, and expected the church to, to, to have an influence in, in, in the city around them. And what happened is the, the city influenced them. And there all sorts of things that messed up. Why? Because they, they didn't stand true to the word of God and they weren't faithful. Pray that the Lord helps us to be faithful to God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, that, that, Lord, we live in a time of grace. A time, Lord, as you said, there's, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, Lord. Paul has written that in Romans, Lord. We understand that. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sin. Lord, we thank you that it's not anything to do with our righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. If we had to stand before you, Lord, on our own, we've been found lacking. But thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, 
rising again from the dead, clothing us with your righteousness, that when we stand before you, Lord, it's, it's what you see. You see your son. You've taken care of our sin. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to walk worthy of the calling that you've called us to. Lord, help us to seek to glorify you and all that we do. Lord, help us to, to look for those opportunities. Though we may be rejected and made fun of by the people around us, harassed, Lord, we know that you love them and you have a plan for them and they need to know you just as much as, as, as we needed to know you. So help us to be open to the leading of your spirit, to walk worthy of the calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.